Here we go again on the Break It Down for Bracken's podcast. Today we have Amy Serbaugh. She is with the Children's Home Society of West Virginia. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk about something I don't have a lot of experience with. So you're going to kind of take the lead and I'll ask a few questions. But um, what is the Children's Home Society and what brought you to it? So we, Children's Home Society is a nonprofit child welfare agency. Our region serves Berkeley, Jefferson, and Morgan counties, and our mission is to promote the well-being of children and families, and everything that we do is just that. Everything that we strive to do, every um, employee that we have strictly lives and breathes that mission in our agency to promote the the well-being of children and families. So um, I actually started being involved with Children's Home Society when I worked for the state Back in 2011, I was an investigator for Child Protective Services and um, began working as a multidisciplinary investigative team member. Wait, wait. A, a, multidiscipl- a multidisciplinary? Investigative team member. Okay. What, what does that mean? So that is part of the investigators in our county. Each county has a multidisciplinary investigative team who comes together when there's an allegation or a concern about a child and works as a team with the with Children's Home Society to make sure that we are working together and handling that child with care to make sure that we're not interviewing the child multiple times, dragging them back through their trauma multiple times to fulfill our role as an investigator. And when you say trauma, do you want to elaborate a little bit on what uh, idea that would be? Yeah, that's um, any serious allegation that they've experienced of child abuse. So um, the multidisciplinary investigative team handles anything from neglect cases, uh, physical abuse cases, domestic violence, exposure to drug use in the home, um, and sexual abuse allegations. So law enforcement, child protective services, and prosecution uh, makes up the three investigative components okay. of that of that team. Um, so as I worked for Child Protective Services, those were mostly the cases that I received, and I began working with Children's Home Society um, and their Child Advocacy Center. So um, right away, I knew that eventually I wanted to work for Children's Home Society. As a nonprofit agency, they have the ability to really focus on their mission of promoting um, the well-being of children and not really have a lot of red tape that sometimes state organizations have. So in 2017, after um, working in Child Protective Services for what I felt like was a good time to give service there, I transitioned um, over to Children's Home Society as a forensic interviewer with the Child Advocacy Center. And your your CPS duties were also here in the Panhandle? They were. I predominantly worked in Morgan County, Mm -hmm. um, but would oftentimes take cases in Jefferson County when they needed coverage as well as Berkeley County. Okay. And then what drew you to that position 10 years ago, 11 years ago? Um, I think I've always had a passion and a heart to serve. Um, you know, children are some of our most vulnerable citizens and, um, I think I just really connect well with children. I don't personally want any children, but being able to kind of care for them and advocate for them is something that I've always been passionate about. I went to college to be a juvenile probation officer, and it just took me on a different path in child welfare. Awesome. So can you describe a a success story for me? Sure. Um, You know, success stories look very different. So oftentimes... um, 
people think that success stories are rescuing a child out of a bad situation, but that's not really how um, folks in child welfare view it. One of my favorite success stories is, um, as an investigator, we had a mom who was very severely addicted and also in a violent relationship. So when you receive a referral like that, it sounds very scary because it's such an um, uncontrolled environment for a child to live in. So unfortunately, the circumstances were unsafe and I had to provide a removal for that child. Um, we went through the court process, which is what most parents go through. They have a right to a hearing in 10 days when a child is removed. Um, so we went through that hearing. Um, mom waived her right to have evidence presented at that time. We got to our next stage where mom made admissions. She said, I have a, a serious uh, drug problem. I'm in a violent relationship and I need help. So then the state was able to work with her hand in hand. And um, the beautiful part was we got to celebrate nine months later that she was clean and sober. She got her own place. She was living healthy and her child got reunified to her. So that's one of um, a success story that I really remember because it can be really sad and at a breaking point to have to remove a child from a parent, but we love to celebrate those reunification stories where that intervention made an impact and they're both living healthy now. That's, that's an incredibly great story. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of the, the opposite also, but I, I like focusing on those sort of positives when you're thinking about a program like this. So speaking of programs, tell me about some of the specialized programs that the Children's Home Society of West Virginia has. So we actually have... Um, 13 primary locations against the state across the state, excuse me, with 27 physical locations. So we have an abundance of programs that we offer all over the state of West Virginia. Here in the Eastern Panhandle, we have seven programs that we provide. Our um, largest program is our permanency program, which we'll dive into a little bit later. Um, but that permanency program is our foster care and adoption program, our international adoption program services, and our home finding services. Um, our next largest program is our Safe Haven Child Advocacy Program. Those two programs are where we serve the most children consistently um, throughout the year. So the other programs that we offer are mostly community-based programs. We have a um, Healthy Grand Families Program, which is where we provide um, supportive services to um, grandparents, aunts and uncles who are raising their kinship relatives. They're raising their, grand, their grandchildren, their nieces or nephews because um, their parents are going through the uh, cycle of child abuse and neglect proceedings. West Virginia is one of the um, highest ranks of relatives raising their relatives as children. What's an example of some of the help you provide for the grandparents or uncles or aunts? We provide um, case management for them, connection to services, referral services. Oftentimes- Getting too high speed on me. Case management. You got to like really <laughs> break it down for me. So most of that case management is connection to other services okay. or education. A lot of the families that we're seeing that are raising younger generations, it's a completely different world. So a lot of our education looks like safety on cell phones, what apps to look for, um, how to parent a kid in today's society. So they're kind of thrust into it and they're, they're going to just wing it. Absolutely. But luckily you're able to come in and help. And then does that mean somebody's been processed through the child protective services before that happens? Or are you t is it someone that can reach out to you that's just taking it on because somebody's struggling? It can be both. Okay. So oftentimes um, grandparents will end up with their grandchildren just as an example because uh, CPS has come in to remove them. 
And other times it can be because mom is in and out of their life. So grandma is just raising them. Gotcha. Anybody can be referred to that program, whether they're involved with the state or not. Okay. If there's a grandparent or an aunt or uncle who's out there helping care for a relative, we're happy to connect with services. Okay. Well, what are some of the other things that that, that program does though? Um, we offer a support group um, where they, I think one of the most powerful things in that support group is um, relative connection. You can come in and see that other people are having similar struggles that you are, that you're not alone in trying to navigate parenting all over again as a, an older generation. Okay. What's the next program? So the next program is our newest program. It does serve Berkeley County and that's our family support center. Um, oftentimes when families need help with connection to services such as SNAP benefits, that's our food stamp program, or um, emergency help with electric bills or emergency food help. That stuff is available as tangible need items, but oftentimes those families have goals of getting out of that environment and getting out of that cycle, but there's no one really there to help them meet those goals or reach those goals. So our family support center will have social workers who can help them set those goals, but then also help them navigate the steps to get there. So it can include writing a resume to get a job. You know, oftentimes that's a barrier that people face. They don't know how to create that document. Um, simply filling out an application. A lot of applications now are online that you have to submit and not everybody has access to that or access to a computer. You know, the public libraries are great for that, but oftentimes people don't even know that that's an option. Sure. Um, or how to use that technology. So the social workers will help them do that as well, as well as just general budgeting, how to make a grocery meal plan, all of those things that could be barriers to success. Is a family assigned like a counselor or do they just attend these sort of classes that are just scheduled? They're assigned an individual social worker who manages their case specifically and then will also be um, offering support group classes. So uh, one month we might have a budgeting class that a group can come to. One month we might have a parenting support class that will teach basic parenting skills that they can come to. Um, that is our newest program, so we're still in development of it. Um, but we plan on offering support groups monthly that focus on different ideas and different education models. And that was called the support that, center? That's the family support center, yeah. I'm taking notes. So if I have questions, I can know what I'm talking about. What's the next one? So the next one that we have is our We Can Mentoring Program. I'm sorry. Our We Can Mentoring Program. We Can. Two words. Yep. We Can. We Can. Yep. Mentoring Program. Gotcha. And that is a completely community-based program. Anybody can be referred. What's community-based mean? That is that you're not associated with any other organization. You don't have to be the child doesn't have to be involved with the state, doesn't have to be involved with any other program. They just live in the community as a resident. There's no qualifications. Okay. Um, so that program works with children who need support or just need something fun to do or need other kids to hang out with. It provides a social connection for kids as well as two other options for participation. We can give one-on-one uh, -on -one mentoring services where we pair um, each child with a mentor to help explore interest, give them a safe person to talk to, um, give them a safe person to do activities with, to explore um, different developmental assets that they might not know about. Um, and developmental assets are kind of things that 
help build kids up, show them that they have a talent, that they have a purpose and that they can do, do things that they are talented and they are unique and they have skills. When the children get these sort of counselings or coaching, are the parents there with them? Nope. Um, we do have probably quarterly sessions where parents, all parents come in and do things together. Um, so one-on-one -on -one mentoring sessions, usually the child is um, just one-on-one -on -one with their mentor, but that is of course at the comfort of the parent. So some mentors will do um, picnics in the parent's yard or you know, oftentimes the parent develops a relationship with the mentor as well. And then they go shopping, they go bowling, they just spend time together. Okay. I was, I was envisioning it being in a, at the, in a center. So you're saying they go to the house, the residence. Yep. It's one-on-one. -on -one. They, they can go to the parent's house. They don't ever go to the mentor's house, Yeah. Um, but they go out in the community. So the other part of that group is, is actually a group setting on site at our office. Um, and that is the funnest. We have so much fun at those activities. We do um, tie-dye with the kids. We do. We take them fishing at Zets. Um, they go to the pumpkin patch, whatever. It's just a way for kids to be social with each other, learn how to interact with each other, but also explore fun things that they can do. It also has a focus on academic success. So there's a reading program that we do and a math program that we do with them as well. And the purpose is kind of to build up those developmental assets to decrease any ACE scores that they might have. Any what? Any ACE scores. ACE? Yes, and that's those adverse childhood experiences that a child might have. I, I wouldn't know that, Amy. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm trying to keep it simple in my yep. head so I can really understand. So it almost sounds like what I would understand like a boys and girls club to be. Or no, big brother kind of thing. Big brothers, big sisters, right? Exactly. Kind of like a, a mentoring someone to look up to. Um, it's typically at their house or like you said, in a social setting. Uh, but then the, the coaching almost like a classroom, like where they, I, I'm trying to envision it from 17 down to five. Yep. Um, we will take in like four-year-olds if their six-year-old sibling is involved. Um, we do break them into two. Um, like we have a smaller class that will do group projects together. And then our teenagers usually transition into being junior mentors as well. So we encourage them to share an activity with the younger kids that are in our program. Um, just to teach skills as well. And they're kind of the coolest ones because everybody looks up to them. Right. What, um, what qualifies you as a mentor or is it volunteers? Are they paid positions. What is it? It's all volunteer. Um, and we do desperately need volunteers for that program. Um, the only qualifications are, of course, you have to pass a background check Sure. and, um, you have to show up. Gotcha. And then what kind of training does somebody go through to become a mentor? Um, we do provide um, basic training about our agency. There's trauma-informed training that you go through. All of our trainings are in-person or web-based, and it's not lengthy. Um, I think the total training hours are about 20 to 30, but most of them are online okay. that you do at your own pace. But we just want to make sure that um, you have a clear expectation that some kids that we work with have been through some difficult experiences and we want to make sure that you can handle them appropriately. A lot of that training too is about mandated reporting. If there's a concern about a child, we want to make sure that you're prepared to handle what to do. Right. Okay. <clears throat> All 
All right, cool. What's the next program? Um, the next program that we have is our mental health program. So we have um, in-house, we have two mental health therapists. We do have one vacancy. So if I could put a plug in there, if you're looking for a job, contact us. Um, but our mental health social worker that we have in-house is phenomenal. She provides trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy as well as play therapy. So the trauma-focused therapy is for children that we mostly serve who have experienced a significant trauma in their life, whether it be um, abuse or a circumstance that they lived through, such as a... Um, like an arrest. Yep. Or... or a fire, maybe? A fire, right. a hurricane, anything that they could have um, PTSD symptoms of or adjustment symptoms of. It can even be a really scary divorce that they've lived through or a family separation or a grief. Okay. That one's called mental health. So that's, I guess, just counseling sessions. Yep, it's therapy. And it's the... Um, the state pays for it or it's a grant funded program. So that's what I mean, kind of grant funded. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like it's, there's no cost to the family. Absolutely. No cost. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Who, give me an example of how to put this. How does somebody know that they should reach out to you? Uh, like for that sort of stuff. So we have what's called um, trauma indicators. So if you have a child in your life that is um, that has experienced something difficult and they're having problems um, going to sleep at night or they're having problems um, with nightmares or anything that you notice is different about their habits or their routines, reach out to us. We'll do a trauma indicator form. Um, we'll do a referral with you and we'll put the child on our wait list. We do unfortunately have a wait list right now, but any child can be referred to our program in the Eastern Panhandle. We even provide services to children out of state if necessary. Okay. What's the next program? Well, the mental health program also has another component. Okay. So we have a unique partnership with Jefferson County Schools where we have um, four positions to provide mental health therapists in the school setting. Right now we have two vacancies, unfortunately, in that program, but it's super unique that we can provide mental health social workers in the schools to work with children who are having some behavioral problems in school, issues focusing on academic um, settings, or just generally need extra support to be successful in their homes or successful in the classroom. Um, there's absolutely no cost and barriers of transportation are eliminated. So um, children are referred by their school counselor or by their teacher. And then we on the other end work with the parents to explain the services, explain the programs, explain what goals we're going to work on, and then teach the parents the same skills that we're teaching the child so that they can be uh, followed through in the home. I have so many dumb questions I don't want to ask because I don't want to sound like a total knucklehead. I have kids, so I don't know. But like in my mind, I mean, granted, with zero experience. How do you determine personality versus trauma? Like, you know, it's probably not really answerable. But in my mind, I wonder, like, if there's a personality of a kid who's just rambunctious mm -hmm. and identified kind of as bad in the classroom because they're a little wild. How do you determine if it's because of trauma or not, though? So there's different assessments that can be done, but the uh, mental health social workers in the schools, they don't do trauma work. Trauma work needs to be 
in a setting that is consistent and that is uh, non-disruptable, if that makes sense. So trauma work really takes a very long time for kids to do. Their narrative can take anywhere from three months to six months to nine months. And that narrative is really where they go into what they experienced and processed it. So the school setting is not really appropriate for that. I may have asked the wrong question. I, okay. I meant like I use trauma in place of mental health Okay. or account uh, mental health in the school situation. Mm -hmm. Like how, how do you determine whether somebody needs some mental health counseling versus that's just their personality and they're just kind of wild. Yeah. And it's, that's a really, um, or quiet. So that's like a difficult thing to determine. And when we say mental health, we we don't mean like that you have a disorder. It's just helping you to regulate or helping you to manage those components of your personality or learn other ways to cope so that you can focus in the school setting and be successful to learn. It's not changing your personality. It's kind of just learning how to um, learn how to focus it, if that makes sense. Right. And if I remember correctly, you said that is actuated by the school counselor. Yes. The, and, then, and then it processes to the parents and then, mm -hmm. okay, that makes sense. Yep. Those referrals come from the school counselor or their teacher. Bingo. And they spend enough time with the kids that they could see when there's a need or something to be explored. Yep. Okay, cool. I get it. What's next? Our next program is our, let's see, we talked about we can mental health. We did oh. the support center and we did safe haven already. We are going to talk about next our um, permanency or never mind. That's the last one. Yeah. We're going to talk about our safe at home services, safe at home services. Yes. So the safe at home services is one of our um, state programs that we work with with DHHR. Um, but it is working in the community with children and their families. So um, several years ago, when a child or uh, teen, really our work is the teens, um, was having disruptive behaviors, was getting in trouble with the law for kind of those juvenile things like breaking curfew, skipping class, those kinds of things. Um, we didn't have many options other than not being in the community any longer. So they were going to detention or they're going to placement when really we discovered that we could work with them in the home with their parents to kind of remedy those things. So the Safe at Home program, um, we get referrals from DHHR. Anybody can call DHHR and request services for their teenager. That's called a community referral. You just call the hotline number, which is 800-352-6513 and request to put a referral in if your child is incorrigible or just having problems listening in the home or you're afraid that they're at risk for those things. And that can initiate services. So um, those referrals also come from the court if the child has received charges for anything. We go into the home and we work directly with the parents and the child to create goals that are kind of hindering them from being successful or hindering them from staying out of trouble. And they are specific to what that child wants to work on. Um, we go into the home weekly. We check in on the kids. The child wants to work on or needs to work on? Wants to. Okay. And typically you'll find that what the child's goals are um, are lateral to what they need to work on. It's usually the starting point that leads to where they're acting out. Okay. So they usually have a good awareness of that, more insight than what we have. 
Okay. Um, and that program is super successful because not only is it putting responsibility on the child, but it's also putting responsibility on the parent. Because oftentimes we see that parents need to step up too and learn that their behavior might also be impacting their child's. Gotcha. Okay. What's next? So those are all of the programs that we offer in the Eastern Panhandle. Um, I would like to talk more about our permanency program and the right. Child Advocacy Center. Okay. Child Advocacy. We didn't do that part, though. Oh, no. So Safe Haven Child Advocacy Center oh. is... That's what it's called? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. I just had Safe, wait, Safe Haven Advocacy Center. Okay. I'm sorry. That's the number two one. Yeah. Sorry, people. I, there's a lot to keep track of here. I'm trying to learn this <laughs> stuff. Um, so let's go ahead and start with the permanency program then. Okay, so our permanency program is the program that um, is our largest. We have um, foster care and adoption services. We also offer international adoption assistance. And you said international adoption. Adoption, okay. Mm -hmm. As well as um, home finding services. What's that? So home finding services are locating um, individuals in our community who want to be a foster parent and then walking them through the process of being licensed. Okay. Okay. Um, so the permanency program, we currently have in the Eastern Panhandle, 47 children who are placed in homes with our families. Our families um, are all over Berkeley, Jefferson, and Morgan County. And those are the people who have stepped up to say, we want to make a difference. We want to be foster parents. We want to take care of children, whether it be for three weeks or nine months or adoption. So when we receive a referral from Child Protective Services um, saying that we've had an emergency situation, we have to remove this child, um, they'll call us, they'll give us sometimes just the, the sex, the gender, and the age of a child and say, do you have placement? Other times they have more information, but sometimes that's we have very limited information because they're working under emergency circumstances. We go down our list of licensed homes that we have and we start making calls. Do you have space in your home? Can you take this placement? Um, when we get a foster family who is able to take the child and is willing to take the child, um, we then make arrangements to place that child immediately. Oftentimes our kiddos come to us um, with just a backpack of clothes that they were able to throw together. Um, they may come with, if they've been in care for a while and they're coming through a disruption, they might come with a whole storage unit of things. Um, we make sure that they are able to bring whatever they need to be comfortable and start their adjustment into a new home. Um, so our foster care social workers are coordinating that exchange and are coordinating getting that child in the home, making those initial introductions, and then they're providing support to that family and the child um, as they're navigating that new environment that they're in. All right. So if I understand this correctly, there's a hypothetically drug use and abuse in the house. The child's been removed. Let's imagine like a 10 year old mm -hmm. and then they go into foster care and like your success story, the mom gets some treatment is good to go. Maybe found a job. And that's when the child could come out of foster care. Right. When They're the, not permanently away from their parents. Correct. Um, oftentimes the court, the court makes all of those determinations. Okay. Um, so the court will return custody 
And by that time, we're usually already working with the biological parents to begin a transition period. Okay. So the foster family's already working with the caregiver. They're having visitation. Um, Sometimes it's unsupervised where the child is already integrating back into their caregiver's home because it is a transition and an adjustment. We want to make sure that we are caring for the child's needs and making sure that we make it as easy on them as we can. So the more supportive a foster parent is of biological families and the visitation process when it's safe, the better it is for the child. So that's really what we promote. The best outcome for the child is what we want. It's so awesome. Tell me more about the permanency. When you say permanency program, that means the adoption part. Right. It's both. Okay. So um, the permanency program, permanency really in itself is making sure that the child has a consistent, safe environment, whether their plan is to be reunified with their family or to be adopted. So if they're going to be reunified, we want them to stay with the same foster family throughout the entire process. We don't want there to be any disruptions. We want to make sure that we as an agency are supporting that foster family and equipping them with the tools that they need to care for that child. Um, if they are pre-adoptive, if we think that the child is going to be adopted because there may be aggravated circumstances that prevent the child from going back into that home, which there are a few situations such as um, sexual abuse by a parent, um, significant injury to a parent by another parent, um, including death, we know that that child is not going to be returned to the home. So we find a home that's pre-adoptive for them. But we know that this family is going to be willing to adopt that child so that they're not moved from home to home. you got to be a real special person to be in this field, Amy. I mean, this is some sometimes sad stuff, it sounds like. You know, it is, and I am really proud to say that the staff that we have at our site, um, they live and breathe our mission, too. They are meant to be where they are, um, really to just serve for the well-being of children and families. They're all passionate about that. They all come to work um, ready to serve and ready to meet the needs of their kids. That's a special kind of person right there. Yeah. Did we cover, did we cover everything on the permanence? And you want to move to Safe Haven? or? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, the other thing that we do in permanency um, – to really facilitate that we're supporting biological families is we provide um, visitation for biological parents on site too. So as soon as a child is coming into our care and the court allows it, we set up visitation for the biological parent and their children because we want to preserve that bond too. So we have three visitation rooms where we have um, three case aides that are specifically assigned to arranging visitations, scheduling them, and oftentimes the court orders that they be supervised. So they're also supervising and reporting to the court how those visits go. So we do not have a lag in that happening, which I think is also really imperative to preserving that bond, but also helping the child transition better because they still get to have that relationship with their biological parent. Okay. I understand. Safe Haven Advocacy advocacy program. Yep. So Safe Haven Child Advocacy Center is um, one of our second largest program. And there's kind of three big components of that. Our first is the forensic interviewing service. So when there's a serious allegation involving a child that Child Protective Services and law enforcement is involved in, they call us and they say, 
we have this referral, we have serious concerns, we need this child to, to be interviewed. And that forensic interview is really gaining that first statement from a child. It's being recorded, and there's also a separate room that law enforcement and child protective services, and oftentimes prosecution, are able to watch that interview live as it's happening. In the interview room, the only two people allowed is our trained certified forensic interviewer and the child. So the interviewer is asking the child um, in a neutral setting questions, building rapport, and gaining their statement of what they experienced. Um, they are able to take a break to check in with all of the investigators to make sure that all of the questions get answered so the child doesn't have to be re-interviewed multiple times. So we're getting all of those details in one setting. Um, the interviewer goes in with very little facts because we want to maintain neutrality. Sure. We don't want the child to give any details of their story that they're not ready to disclose. Disclosure is a process and it cannot be forced by anybody. So the forensic interviewer is gaining all of those details, but they're also um, not necessarily determining if a, we can't ever determine if a child is telling the truth or not. But what we can do is identify elements of credibility, which later comes into the court system. We have um, three trained interviewers on staff, and they provide expert testimony usually at least once a week to determine to help the court determine the credibility of a child's statement. So sometimes credibility can be um, invalid when there's coaching involved. Sometimes we have child custodial cases where one parent is trying to coach or feed the child things because they want custody versus the other. Um, and those things are very clear for our forensic interviewers. So they serve a very important role in the justice process of that. Now, simultaneously, while a child is being interviewed, one of our family and child advocates is meeting with their family. And they're meeting with that family to really help them express their feelings, help them like kind of line up their thoughts about this process. Because while the child is navigating something really tough, oftentimes parents are having all kinds of emotions of guilt, of worry, of confusion. So our advocate is really processing that and gaining information too. That advocate is assigned to a family as soon as we get to the referral, we receive the referral, and through the length of the case. So the advocate is checking in um, weekly, monthly, and then every time our case is reviewed on, on our setting of MDITs. Um, so they're really the liaison to that family of the entire investigative process. And that can last for a month all the way up to nine months to years. Um, I started serving a client in 2017 and I still check in with that client monthly because they just need that support. Um, the advocate attends court hearings, helps them file protective orders, whatever the need is, even to tangible needs of providing referrals to food pantries, providing clothing, whatever they need, the advocate meets it. Um, and then our third component of the Child Advocacy Center is a, um, coordinating multidisciplinary investigative team monthly. So those are the meetings that we... Repeat that again, please. Multidisciplinary investigative team meetings. Multidisciplinary keeps throwing me off. What It, it sounds really high speed. I don't understand... So multidisciplinary is different disciplines 
So law enforcement, child protective services. Thank you. Mental Sorry. health. Sometimes I'm dumb. Okay, I got it. I got it now. Um, so the multidisciplinary investigative teams, we coordinate and keep track of every open case. So every child that walks through our doors gets staffed on that county's MDIT list. And then monthly, we go to the prosecuting attorney's office here in Jefferson County, and we review every case that's open. Now, new cases get put on that list right away. So every case that every child that we saw in September is being actually got reviewed yesterday by prosecution, law enforcement, child protective services, our forensic nurses, with the school system sits on our team, as well as mental health providers. And they're all coming together to make sure that we are focusing on every aspect of that case. Did we get proper search warrants? Have we thought about the safety of other children in the home? Um, are we filing the right petitions? Did we get a medical exam for the child? Should they be referred to mental health services? We're all coming together to give different perspectives of how to care for this case properly and also to make sure that that case doesn't slip through the cracks. That's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, we do that monthly in each county. Um, it is the prosecutor's meeting, but we coordinate and facilitate that as a service to them um, just to work with them and ensure that we are advocating for every child on our list. You know, I know that you say that you pass with authority in races. We advocate <laughs> with authority. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that sounds really awesome. And some of my questions are there, you know, this Children's Home Society of West Virginia sounds like it's what I would assume Child Protective Services just does, like an umbrella statement. But it sounds like with how big, incredible the organization is with 27 locations across the whole state, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's happening in every county every month, like those sort of reviews, or is that just here? So Children's Home Society, um, we're the only region that has a child advocacy center. Okay. Um, there are 21 other child advocacy centers across the state that are run by different organizations or independent organizations. Okay. Um, and I think of the 55 counties, we have 49 counties covered by a CAC. Okay. Um, our, one of our strategic goals is to have every county covered by a CAC. Um, it's really hard for our region to expand because Romney and Hampshire County are covered. So there's not much, no other, there's not other areas that we can go to for right. our CAC. It's too far. Yeah. It seems financially overwhelming. Let's talk about how you're funded. You said grants, but maybe our audience is interested on how to donate, whether it's items or money or how does that play? Yeah. So we are a um, grant funded program. Now, of course, we do receive state dollars for our permanency and our foster care program for children that we have placed, mm -hmm. as well as our safe at home program. We receive funding from the state because they're state programs, but all of our other programs are completely grant funded. And we, um, the grant funding really just covers our salaries. Okay. Um, so all of those extra things that we do for our kids are through our fundraisers. So the community can support us through donating items, donating, you know, financial support, or just simply spreading the word about the programs that we offer or volunteering for one of our fundraising programs. Do you have fundraisers that you could share that are like yearly? 
Yep, so we have, um, actually tomorrow in Jefferson County, we have a table that will be set up at the Shepherdstown Fire Department um, during their apple butter making process for the festival. So we'll have crafts and baked goods if you'd like to come out and see us there. Um, some of our weekend mentoring kids made beautiful crafts to sell. Cool. All of that is by, um, you know, donation. And then we are getting ready to launch into our busy season. We have about... Um, 200 to 250 kids a month that we're really caring for through our case management services and across all of our programs. Um, and we try to make sure that we provide, you know, holiday for all of them. So we are doing um, gift drives. You can call in our office to adopt a family or adopt a child for Christmas or just donate gifts to us. Um, we make sure that the kids that need anything are receiving gifts from our programs. So, and their siblings, you know, if we are serving a um, child in safe at home services, we want to make sure that their siblings are having support too. So it's really about that family unit that we're serving too. So, That's interesting. When you say adopt, um, adopt a child for the holidays, mm -hmm. like say for Christmas, yeah. you mean basically providing just gifts, but your hands off. Yeah. So it's, um, Don't they have we, a list or something that they want. Yep. We give you the list and you go shop for them. You can wrap those gifts and we make sure that the family gets it so that they have those gifts under the tree on Christmas morning. It's really nice. Yeah. What other fundraisers have you guys tackled? So we have coming up, it will start on the day after Thanksgiving, our little red stocking campaign. Um, you'll go into local businesses, the Omega uh, gas stations, Rocks and BFS are two of our biggest supporters. Um, they sell little red stockings for a dollar. You buy them, write your name on them, and they wallpaper their walls. It's incredible. Um, but that's one of our biggest fundraisers of the year. I bet. Yeah. It's really cool. Everybody gets into it. Um, we love when our supporters take a picture and tag our Facebook page so that we can see the support. Um, but that's a dollar donation and it's incredible what our community does for us in that month. It runs all the way through Christmas Eve. So the day after Thanksgiving through Christmas Eve, um, we're going to do four kickoff events this year. So on Monday after Thanksgiving, um, come out and visit us. We'll be at the Shepherdstown Rocks. Um, we'll be at the Kelly Island Rocks the Rockcliffe Drive Rocks, and then the BFS in Spring Mills. So lots of opportunities to come see us. Um, we'll also have donation buckets, and we'll be collecting um, Christmas presents at those, at those locations as well. Um, and then we also have, this is new that came to us in ways of uh, navigating COVID and still fundraising. We have a Little Red Stocking silent auction that is strictly online. So we put baskets together, and you can go bid on them. And we run that the day after Thanksgiving until December 9th, I think, is the cutoff date. So you'll have plenty of time to get those gifts to um, loved ones for Christmas. And they're really nice. A lot of our uh, local supporters and businesses donate gifts to us to put in the baskets, and they're phenomenal. That's they're, great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, what about people who might be able to volunteer? We would love volunteers. Um, we have our gift wrap coming up. So if you love gift wrapping presents, we need lots of people to come volunteer for that fundraiser. That starts on the um, first Saturday of December and runs through Christmas Eve. We would love to have volunteers there. Um, we need volunteers to help with our uh, family resource center, organizing donations, counting donations, folding lots of baby clothes. 
um, as well as we desperately need volunteers in our weekend mentoring program. So if you have a passion in two to three hours a month that you can give to a child, um, contact our office at 304-264-4658 and ask for our volunteer coordinator or supervisor, and we will get you in the process of being a volunteer for that program. Okay. This has all been really great information. Um, website, Facebook? Yep. We're on Facebook at Children's Home Society, a West Virginia-Martinsburg site. Okay. Uh, we're one of the first ones that comes up. And when you Google us, we are childhswv.org. Say that again. Childhswv.org. Gotcha. Do you think we missed anything? I don't think so. Amy, it's been really nice having you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing this information with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. All right. Today's conversation was brought to you by Bracken's Painting. You can find information about Bracken's Painting at www.brackenspainting.com for all of your residential and commercial painting needs. Give Bracken's a call.